morning, Church of 1122. How is everybody this morning? Good, good. You look great. We have, we have uh, some, like, COE22 royalty with us here today. These guys are a real big deal uh, in our lives. Some of the missionaries that we have sent out, uh, Tyler and Lee Workman, and so we, we just wanted to, they're in town for like six weeks or something like that for Christmas, and, and we just thought it'd be a great opportunity to give us an update on what's going on, and then um, a lot of folks weren't around when we commissioned you out 15 months ago. So uh, these guys run Akoa Refuge Ministries in the western part of Uganda, and why don't you give us just a quick overview of what, um, what Akoa Refuge does. We started in 2010, and we started doing, like, orphan care ministry, and now we have around 70 kids in our program, and we've had a total of 90 who have come through, Um, and then we also are starting the community development aspects of our ministry, so we're building a community center, and we're going to be opening a clinic, and then we also partner with local pastors, and we have seven Bible schools and are training about 220 pastors and lay people. Very good, very good. And I just want to point out, I think I've said this at every service, but part of uh, Tyler and Lee, their favorite part of their job is to um, be on stage in front of thousands of people, (laughs) and especially when there's lots of lights and high-definition cameras, and that's just really their favorite, especially Tyler. Uh, He likes to show off his mohawk. And so... But they, but but you guys, we're family, right? And so when family comes into town, you all sit at the table and just catch up. So that's kind of what this is. So hey, when you guys took off 15 months ago and, and got to Uganda, uh, what were some of the big victories that you've experienced in the last 15 months and what God's doing in you and through you and to you? Um, well, maybe one of the biggest things is since last September, we have been able to rescue 39 kids. And can you explain to everybody um, what the word rescue means in your world? Um, Well, we get kids kind of like the kids you would see on TV. We have a four-year-old right now. She weighs about 15 pounds. We have a a one-and-a-half-year-old who weighs six pounds. We got a two-day-old baby who no one in her family or her clan wanted her. So she was just left and came to us. And then we get children who are sick and need to be taken to the hospital, kids who have been thrown in the dumpster, kids who have been just left by their moms in the bush. Um, when the government finds them, then they usually bring them to us. And so what are, what are some of the other victories? Um, we, like I said, we planted our seven Bible schools. We started our community development project. We bought three sows last November. And from those three sows, we now have 61 pigs in our pig farm. And... Uh, so from the pig farm, we're able to start our piggery project. About last week, I think, we gave out six female piglets to different families in the village so that they can then start income-generating projects to bring themselves out of poverty using the pigs. Uh, we bought three vehicles. We hosted six teams from the U.S. We did some mobile medical clinics and saw around 450 people. We purchased a building that is going to be a COAS House of Joy clinic. Um, and then we saw around 200 salvations. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> and um, so it hasn't been all, you know, cotton candy and cupcakes since you left. Um, 
there have been some serious surprises and pain and suffering and and obviously I'm in the loop on all of that as your pastor and, and we've been walking with you through all of that. But how about share with our folks some of the surprises that happened while you were in Uganda this year? Um, the the main people that we were partnered with in Uganda, um, you know, they were like our family. We loved them. Um, they they basically betrayed us. We When we moved there 15 months ago, we, you know, took over all aspects of the ministry and the management there on the ground. And so they weren't able to um, steal money from the organization anymore. And so because of that greed, they they started a full-on attack of us personally, but also of the organization. Um, they put us, they, they slandered our name in the name of the organization on national television and in the newspapers and radio. Um, they, they told people that we were child abusers and that um, we were drunks and terrorists and um, rapists and all kinds of horrible things, uh, homosexuals, and, and which in, in Uganda is illegal, but it's also something that people will kill you for. And so, you know, the, the, life, the lives of my family were threatened. There were plots to, you know, poison our water supply and throw acid on us. And, um, you know, we spent spent hours in police stations being interrogated and being extorted by various government officials and um, just were, you know, minutes away from being put in jail for things that we didn't do. Um, even, you know, the high, high-ranking people like from the, the president's office, uh, press secretary was there investigating us and just questioning every aspect of the legality of our organization. Um, it was definitely a very hard 10 months, um, and there was a lot of pain involved. But what the devil tried to use, that greed and, and whatever, to destroy us personally and to destroy the organization really just made us and the organization so much stronger. Um, you know, we're stronger Christians now. We're better leaders, more mature leaders. Um, the organization... You know, when you fight next to somebody, you you get more united. And so our staff is united, and our children are united and are really flourishing in the new environment that we've been able to create for them. And because of all the investigations and all the officials that have, were involved, um, now we have really good relationships with the right people. And uh, the organization is in a place to, to really have a, a large impact in the city that we're in. And so... Um, you know, it was, like I said, it was tough. And when we were in it, we didn't understand it and we didn't really see, you know, why this is happening. But now um, the Lord has really used it and uh, he's going to get the glory and glorify himself out of that situation. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> and so uh, Tyler and Lee are a part of our family um, for sure. And so as soon as we heard that there was there were trials and sufferings and that kind of thing. We put two elders on an airplane and sent them straight to you to be with you and have obviously surrounded you with some of God's people. Um, but we as a church also just want to surround you in prayer. And so how can we as your church family be in prayer for you? I think the biggest prayer would be just a prayer of thanksgiving that the storm is pretty much over. Um, that Although not everything is as we had hoped it would be in when all was said and done, 
the the amount of things that God protected us from, you can't you can't even count them. People had plots to come and steal our children, plots to hurt us, put us in prison, and none of that happened. And so, Tyler and I, in the midst of pain and suffering, we were protected, even though at the time it seemed like the whole walls were closing in and we couldn't even wake up one more morning. Um, but just to thank God that He brought us through that. And then now we get to be home and relax. Um, and then we're starting phase two of ACOA in January. And just prayer that we would have wisdom and discernment on how to move forward in the right way, in the, in the Ugandan way, to do things the way that they want and expect us to do them in a way that will impact the, most, the greatest amount of people. Amen. So I want to pray for you guys. And church family, if you would just reach your hands forward like you're up here with me and let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much um, that, that Tyler and Lee love you because you first love them. God, we thank you for their faithfulness because you are faithful. Lord, we, we praise you for your protection. But God, we also praise you for the pain, for what you've grown, grown up in them, for, for the maturity that you have disciplined them towards. And Lord, we, we thank you that, that they love you so much that they do whatever you tell them to do. And God, we pray for their marriage. We pray for their children. We pray for a core refuge. God, we know that... Um, the pain comes in the night, God, but joy comes in the morning. So, Lord, I pray that this next year is just a year of blessing, and it's a year of jubilee, and it's a year of dancing and not sorrow. And that, God, you'll continue to bless the school and bless the orphanage and bless the McKenzie house. And, God, that more people would know you and more churches would get planted and more children would be rescued and raised in the gospel. And we pray all this in the good, good strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And all God's people said... Amen. Can we give him one more hand, folks? <clears throat> well, if you've got your Bibles, <clears throat> let's go to Acts chapter 23. Uh, Lee and Tyler are kind of a personification of today's message. We're going to talk about uh, the purpose of pain and why there is pain and suffering. And so we're picking up in uh, Acts 23, verse 23, and we're in part two of this series, our Christmas series, called Love That Sticks. And didn't Pastor Ryan do an incredible job last week of getting us kicked off <clears throat> with the first part of, of Acts 23? And if you were here last week, what he covered is that in the beginning of Acts 23, you find out that 40 men uh, make a vow to kill the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul got arrested in Acts chapter 21, but in, in 23, this group of 40 guys, they're, they're going to kill him. And Paul's nephew loves him enough to actually put some action to his feelings for his uncle. And he sticks his neck out and he alerts the right authorities that these men, have, they're, they're going to try to kill my uncle. And that love isn't really love until it costs you something. And then what we pick up here in Acts 23 um, is, is the ongoing saga of, <clears throat> of the Apostle Paul's um, kind of adventurous life here. And if, you, if I'm Paul, at some point you got to ask the question, why me, Lord? I mean, why does it just, it just bad things continue to happen to me? And Paul probably thinks, and I'm a pretty good guy. I mean, I'm in trouble because of my faithfulness, because I'm trying to do what's right and live the right way. And so at some point, he's got to be thinking, God, if you're all powerful and all knowing and all loving, then why do you allow good things to happen to bad people? You ever heard that question? How can a good God allow bad things to happen to good people? Raise your hand if you've heard it. Come on. You, yeah, good. Everybody has. Well, the question's flawed in and of itself. Why? Because there are no good people. I mean, you get that? <laughs> there are no good people, so it's a flawed question. But I know when you ask it, you think, because when pain happens to you, you're like, no, but I'm good. So, so I get the question. It's a legit question. 
that if God is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-loving, how can he allow pain and suffering? And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And so we'll pick it up in 2323. 23, and Paul is really an expert, <clears throat> an expert in the topic of pain and suffering. So it says, then he, that's like the, the guy that's in charge. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him. Now, it's interesting that he sees it as a rescue. Paul would call it an arrest. So the, the perspective matters, all right? So <clears throat> we rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council and I found that he was being accused about questions of their law but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. So Paul would step in right here and say, see, even the Roman governor sees that what's happening to me is not fair. That life's not fair, though. Isn't that the truth? And one of the things that, that we like to say when we are experiencing pain and suffering is, wait a minute, this isn't fair. But one of the things you've got to know is that fair is not a biblical value. That if you are a parent, then you have said this a hundred million times. When my little eight-year-old lawyer comes to me and says, Dad, this is not fair, then what do you as a good parent say? Life's not fair. And then I tell him, son, fair ended at the Garden of Eden, all right? And he doesn't know what I'm talking about, but I do. Life is not fair, and fair is not a biblical value. And quite honestly, we don't really want fair anyway. You've only said that's not fair when you feel like it's, it's unjust towards you. Nobody ever plays the fair card when the unfairness is working out in your favor. So when I'm coaching baseball this year to our back-to-back championship, um, and I'm at first base, and <clears throat> my son JP hits the ball, and he's running to first, and the infielder, the little seven-year-old infielder, fields the ball and makes a great throw to the first baseman, and the first baseman catches the ball, and then JP's foot hits the base, and the umpire says, safe. What do you think I said? That's not fair. You see, because, no, I said, praise God from whom all blessings flow, all right? I don't care about that seven-year-old, I care about mine, all right? I hope mine is safe, and, and I know you know that because not one of you have ever been traveling down I-95 and seen a police officer pull somebody over, and you just pull in behind them. Hi, sir, um, I was also speeding, and it's not fair for you to write him a ticket and not my, write me a ticket, so nobody wants fair, <coughs> so... It's not fair that Paul is arrested. He hadn't even done anything wrong, but it's kind of irrelevant. Verse 30. And when it was disclosed to me that there could be a plot against the man, that was Pastor Ryan's message last week, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. And so the soldiers, according to their instructions, they took Paul and they brought him in by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor. And they presented Paul also before him. And on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And he learned that he was from Cilicia. And he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded at Herod's praetorium, which is just like a barracks. And so at some point, you know Paul has got to say, really, God, when is this going to end? 
I mean, I get arrested for doing the right thing. I'm going on trial. It looks like I was going to get out of this whole thing in chapter 22. And now here we are in 23. And I'm getting carted around to different places. And there's people trying to kill me. I mean, can I not catch a break? Why Why do bad things happen to me? Why must I walk through this pain? And if you've lived any life at all, then you one day at some point have either walked through pain, you're in it now, or it's coming one day. And so what I'm going to do is I want to talk to you about some of the purposes of pain in our life. And I'm going to talk about it in four different buckets. I don't know that this is an exhaustive list. Uh, maybe in maybe some other time in my life, I'll look back and say, no, nah, there's actually six buckets. But, but today we're going to talk about four, four purposes or four types or four buckets of pain. And anybody Baptist? Did you grow up Baptist? Raise your hand. What are y'all doing on the front row? Y'all are in the wrong spot. So it's in the back. In the back. Okay. So you're going to love this Baptist because they all start with P. All right. So we got a four-point sermon that all starts with P. If we just put gravy on it, it would be Southern Baptist. All right. Here we go. <clears throat> So one of the reasons when you ask, why am I suffering pain? And this is the one that we don't like to talk about. But sometimes, oftentimes, um, pain is is a result of personal consequence. Pain is a result of personal consequence. Sometimes people go through pain and you just have to say, hey, listen, the reason that you're suffering pain is because you've made some dumb decisions. You've made some sinful decisions. You've done some, you've, you've done some dumb things and it just has consequences. And as much as you don't like to talk about that and talk about just poor choices or whatever, sometimes the pain that you are in is a result of your own personal consequences. The Bible says it this way in Proverbs 22, 3, the prudent see danger and hides himself. The NIV says takes, takes refuge. The prudent sees danger and takes refuge, but the simple go on and suffer for it. In other words, <laughs> we've talked about this often, that, that direction, not intention, determine your destination. So some of you have, had, have headed headlong right into pain. And you ask the question, why has God allowed this to happen to me? Because you have made dumb decisions. That's it. I, I mean, I hear it often. People will say, why, why is the devil after my finances? And I tell them, he doesn't have to be. You're doing a great job ruining your own finances. You and your MasterCard don't even need the devil's help. You're, such a, you're doing such a good job at ruining your own life. And so there are times when it's our own personal consequences. And, and let me just tell you this. <clears throat> we live in a society that does not talk a lot about personal consequences and responsibility. Do we? We are quick to talk about our rights. You owe me something. That's my right. And spend very little time talking about our own responsibility. I'll give you a politically charged one. You have fun with this one at lunch and figure out where I'm at on it. All right? Let's talk about health care for a second. So we love to talk about my right for health care, yet nobody's ever talking about your responsibility to take care of your own health. How did I become responsible to pay for you if the majority of your meals you received through the window of your car from a clown for the last 25 years, okay? Maybe there's got to be some kind of discussion here about personal responsibility, amen? Now, if you're walking through pain and it's because of your own personal choices and consequences, the sooner you take ownership for your part of it, the sooner the healing can begin. And anybody that's ever gone through recovery... They know what I'm talking about. Because the first thing that you have to do, you see, confession comes before repentance. You confess and repent. You say, okay, a a part of the pain that I'm living in, it was my own decision. And let me just, if you're in some of that pain, 
Here's the good news. Do you realize that the pain that you're experiencing, from, even from your own mistakes and sins, that's actually God's grace in your life. The reason you got caught, the reason you have to pay the fine, the reason you're in rehab, the reason you're in recovery, that pain that you're experiencing is actually God's grace in your life to help you repent, change direction, and and change the trajectory of your future. His wrath in your life would be that there would be no consequences. Romans 1 says that, that sometimes God's wrath is to turn them over to their own desires and not experience the consequences of sin and pain. And so that God loves you enough that you could experience the pain so that you could change direction. And sometimes, kind of under the same category, um, sometimes your, your pain that you're in is the result of somebody else's personal consequences. They made decisions against you. Your parents or your spouse or your kids or your employer or employees. That There are evil people in this world that God made people, not puppets. And so not only do we have the ability by God's grace to choose to love and to choose to do what's right, but we also have the ability to choose to do evil. And free men will do evil things as long as they are free. And sometimes they do evil against you. And that's why you can be in pain. And so... One of the first things that you've got to do is begin to take responsibility for yourself. I remember when I was a youth pastor sitting in my office, a girl comes in, <clears throat> teenage girl, weeping because she's pregnant, and she says to me, I don't know how this happened to me. <laughs> well, I have a theory if you want to go over it. <clears throat> so one is personal consequence. Another reason that some of us experience pain is this one, that we live in a polluted world. That we live in a polluted world. Now, um, in Genesis chapter 3, before that, when God created the heavens and the earth and the people and all things, it, it was very good. And there was no pain and there was no suffering and everything went the way it was supposed to go. But in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve both sin and sin enters into the world, when the entire human race decided to turn its back on God and be their own gods, and sin entered the world, not only were Adam and Eve and the serpent cursed, but also the very creation that we live in was cursed. Look at it in in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 and 19. This is God talking to Adam, and he says to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Now listen, I don't have time to fully explain that. Husbands never quote that verse, okay? Just stay away from this verse. We'll come back to it in the summer or something. <clears throat> but because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of. Cursed is the ground because of you. You get this? So it's not just that people inherit sin, but we live in a broken and sinful world. That the creation itself, is still, it's, it's not as it should be. It's, it's cursed and crooked and broken. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you will return. So in other words, not only are people sinful, but we just live in a broken world. The sin is that big of a deal, not because of your individual sin, but because of the human race when we turned our backs on God and the entire cosmos was broken, then then we live in a chaotic world. And so you get natural disasters because not only were our hearts crooked, but the weather systems are crooked. And you get hurricanes and you get tornadoes and and you get typhoons and and people die 
I mean, good, innocent people that didn't do anything to deserve it. They die because we live in a chaotic and a broken world. And it's not only true on a, on a macro level, it's also true on a micro level. Even down to your cells and my cells don't always act the way they were intended to act. Because we live in a polluted world. And so, I have sat with people, parents that have lost a child, and they go, why could this happen? And I, and, and, and I just tell them this, okay, even if I walk you through the theological and doctrinal truth of what the Scripture says, I'm not promising that it's going to help your heart in this moment at all. But we live in a broken world. The world is not as it should be. And then, let me just tell you this, if you're going to walk through some pain as a Christian, some other Christians are going to say some of the dumbest stuff in the world to you. I mean, they mean well, but they make up verses that are not in the Bible, like, you know, everything happens for a reason. The Bible says everything happens for a reason. No, it doesn't. It does not say that. Okay? That's, it. That's from the book of Second Opinions or something that you just made up. That is not a Bible verse. Anytime people say that to me, I want to punch them in the mouth and go, well, everything happens for a reason. You know, God's just going to use that for your own glory, and so let me do it again. So, but we live in a broken world. And so when Jesus came and died on the cross, yes and amen, he died just for you. But it's also true that he did not die just for you. But he came to make all things new. And that one day, one day, when he comes and he tears the sky open, he's going to make all things new. He's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And there'll be no sickness and no hunger and no disease and none of that. He'll make all things new. And one day, the, the pain and the suffering that we experience now will just will seem like a temporary inconvenience compared to his glory when we stand face to face with him. But that doesn't mean, here's what the Christians will say, dumb stuff. Even, even acknowledging that future truth doesn't make it hurt any less today. And so don't let anybody tell you how to feel. It's why, it's why the Bible gave us like Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There is, a, there is a season for everything under heaven. There's a time to cry and there's a time to rejoice. And so God gave you feelings so that you could deal with this life and deal with pain. But what you've got to understand is that even when your world feels out of control because this creation is broken and out of control, that God is still in control. He's still got the whole world in his hands and there's a plan to redeem it all and make all things new. It's the hope that we have as Christians. And that there will come a day where we're face to face with him in glory. And that everything is made new. And there is no sickness and there is no hunger and there is no pain and there is no broken relationship. And there's so much gold there, they're using it as asphalt, okay? It's a good deal when we get there. But in the meantime, we live between two trees. We live between the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And we live here. And so Christ died on a tree to redeem all things and make all things new. So sometimes... Sometimes you experience pain just because we live in a broken world. And so there's disease, and there's death, and there's infertility, and there's natural disaster, and those things happen because we live in a broken world. And this this is why it's so dumb for Christian leaders to get on television after a natural disaster happens and act like it's punitive against that country. Have you looked around our country lately? All right? It's not exactly Jesus Fest 2013, all right? So... It's just simply because we live in a broken world, but Christ came to put it all back together one day. So sometimes it's personal consequence. Sometimes it has nothing to do with what you did personally. It's just the fact that we live in a broken world. The third category, this is a tough one to accept. Sometimes we experience pain and it's pruning from the Father. Like God actually initiates and is the author of the pain. Um, 
In John chapter 15, Jesus is speaking, and here's what he says. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser, or the gardener. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. <clears throat> that sometimes God actually, actually brings you some pain for your own good, because he's a good dad. And all good dads discipline their children to maturity. And that God might, God might actually use the pain to help create in you who he's trying to create. You see, because you can discipline without love. If you've ever been in the military, you went to boot camp, you experienced that. But you cannot love without discipline. To love someone is to discipline them. And, and look, let me just... Let me just read you some of my dad's favorite verses in the Bible. He's not a big Bible scholar, but if he read this part, he'd, he'd agree with it. It's from Hebrews chapter 12, and the Bible says this about pain and discipline. Listen. <clears throat> it says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. So you mean that God would actually um, hurt you a little so that you could experience a greater level of freedom later? That's what, that's what Hebrews 12 is talking about. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary... When reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? He says, if you were left without discipline, in which, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. This is what I tell JP before I give him a spanking. You don't want to be an illegitimate child, do you? I'm just trying to do what the Bible says, boy. So receive, verse 9. <clears throat> Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us. How many of you had the earthly father that disciplined you? Raise them high. I'm talking about gave a spanking, all right? I don't see a timeout hand in the air, all right? I'm still angry that I didn't get to grow up in the timeout generation or to go sit in your room on your game chair and play Xbox as you hug your inner self, all right? <clears throat> I'm 40 years old. I grew up in a day where everybody could whip you. I mean, random people in Walmart could just wear you out. You'd be like, who are you? I'm in Rotary with your daddy, boy. I start, you know, just wear you out. There was a technique to it. I mean, it was a whole process with my dad. And, and when I was going through it, I thought, how, what, what is your problem? This is awful. If you loved me, why would you do this to me? And you use weaponry? He had a belt. My daddy had this ninja move, man. He would take his belt, and in one little swoop, he'd go, and it was out like that. I've tried to do it a hundred times. I ripped my whole pants off, all right? I can't do it. And he'd come in there, and, and then I thought, why in the world would you allow me to do this? And then now, as a grown man, I say, Thank Jesus for Perry Martin, that he loved me enough, and he would say that goofy stuff, oh, it's going to hurt me more than it hurts you. I will let me hit you so I can get the full brunt of all the pain that I deserve for my disobedience. <clears throat> now, one thing he would do is crazy that I, that I do think is cruel and unusual. He would fold the belt over in half and get it in a little pop, pop, pop on his way in. He'd be like, come on, man, I already thought it started. That's not right. Crying, didn't even get... Swung at yet, right? But you meet the kids that aren't disciplined. And you know, you know deep down what the problem is, right? 
And I mean, I, so I thank my dad now. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Because a good parent disciplines his children to maturity. And that's what he's saying. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time. Not that, it didn't seem that short, though, did it? Seemed like a long time, but I'm going to go with the Bible. They disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Check this out. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so sometimes God, or God always... disciplines those that he loves. And it does not seem pleasant when you're going through it. But give it enough time, then you know that there's a piece of righteousness that you begin to experience because God has trained you up in it. That, that God doesn't mind stinging us a little in the temporary to develop our character over the long haul. That God is like the sculptor with the, with the hammer and the chisel, chiseling out everything in your life that doesn't look like his son, Jesus Christ. It's called sanctification. And you know what's beautiful about sanctification? The two sides of sanctification. Sanctification is just a big Bible word that just means to become more and more and more like Jesus. Sanctification is, it's, the, it's admitting that, hey, I, I'm not perfect. I am not there yet. Are you with me on that? That I am not there yet. That God still has work to do in my life. That there's discipline that needs to come. There's more and more and more growing that I have to do. There's more of me that's got to get chiseled out so there can be less of me and more of him in my life. And it's why we're a church for all people. It's why it's okay to not be okay. It's why when you come in here, no matter where you are on that sanctification kind of timeline in your own life, that you don't have to fake it because we know that, it, that, that you're not perfect. And God will take you wherever you are, but he'll never leave you there. And the other side of sanctification that's beautiful is this, but I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus our Lord. That I'm more like Jesus today than I used to be. That I, am, I used to be a wretched, black-hearted sinner, and now I am a child of God, a co-heir with the king. That all that he has will one day be mine, and rightfully so. And oh, what manner of love this is, that he would lavish it upon us and call us sons and daughters of God. That, that God is continually working in me and through me. Not because, not because I'm awesome, but to make me more like his son. And one day, in the twinkling of an eye, the discipline's over and I will be perfected. And you will be too if you know Jesus. And stand before him. And that whole thing is called the sanctifying process. And in the meantime, that he disciplines those that he loves. That, that a good dad disciplines his children to maturity. And then the fourth big bucket is this. This one's hard to grab onto also. That sometimes the pain itself is God's provision. Sometimes the very pain itself is God's provision in our lives. That, that the problem is, is that we typically see it in the moment from our own perspective. And little did we know that the almighty sovereign God actually has a plan and a purpose. And it is for hope. And it is for a future. And he's not just trying to hurt you just because he wants to. But the pain is the provision. And the, and the whole Bible is full of examples of this. <clears throat> One of my favorite ones is from the Old Testament with a kid named Joseph. Now, don't get confused. I know it's Christmas time. Not Christmas Joseph. But this is Old Testament Joseph. Coat of many colors. Technicolor dream coat Joseph. All right. So that Joseph, he went through, his whole life was about pain. 
And some of it was personal consequence. He was the youngest kid, and he was his favorite, his dad's favorite. But his dad, you know, you might have a favorite kid, but you're not supposed to tell anybody. Well, his dad made him like a, you're my favorite coat, and then Joseph would wear it around to his other brothers. He'd be like, hey, what's up? See my coat? I'm the favorite. And then Joseph had these dreams about how the whole world was going to bow down to him, and so he told his brothers. That was kind of dumb. Hey, brothers, God gave me this dream that you and the whole world will bow down to me one day. And so a big brothers did what big brothers do. They go, well, you're going to bow down to this. And then one day, they're out on the road, and they beat Joseph up, and they throw him in a cistern, and they rip up his jacket and put blood on it and make up this story about they're going to tell their dad, and they were going to kill him. And then they take a little time out, and they're sitting over here eating a roast beef sandwich. And then Reuben, one of his, the, the nice brother, he says to him, hey, I got an idea. Let's don't kill him. Let's sell him into slavery. And so sure enough, they sell their little brother into slavery. And so he ends up in Egypt working for this guy named Potiphar. And he's doing great and everything looks like it's going well. And then Potiphar's wife, the Bible says that Joseph was a handsome man. And so Potiphar's wife wanted to sleep with him. And so she's chasing after him, chasing after him. And he does what you're supposed to do, flee sexual immorality. So he's running out the door. And on his way out the door, she grabs his coat. He got in trouble for coats all through the Bible. And then when Potiphar gets home, he's like, hey, this boy of yours, he tried to rape me. And it was not fair, but Joseph gets thrown into prison under false accusations. And so he goes to prison, and there he meets the king's, or the pharaoh's, um, uh, chief cupbearer and baker. And he meets these guys, and he becomes friends with these guys, and these guys have these crazy dreams, and Joseph can still interpret dreams. And then one day, it doesn't turn out too good for one of the guys. The other guy goes back to Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh has some crazy dreams. And before you know it, Joseph coming straight out of jail, is now standing in front of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of all of Egypt. He's like the vice president of all of Egypt, and Egypt is the most powerful nation in the entire world, and then the entire world experiences a famine, but Joseph's smart enough that he saved up enough food to feed the whole world, and then by the time you get to the end of the book of Genesis, everybody in the world has to come to Joseph to get food, and guess who's in line? His brothers that beat him and sold him into slavery. And so when they get up to their turn in line, Joseph comes and stands in front of them. And they don't even know it's him. Because it's been about 20 years since they've seen each other. And you've experienced this. If you're my age and you've been to your 20th year high school reunion, it's why they have to put your picture next to your name. So when you walk and be like, what's your name? Oh, wow. Wow. Hmm. That's interesting. All right. So same thing in the Bible. They didn't recognize him. And so... uh, So there he is. And in that moment, you think, all right, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. You think that might be what Joseph is going to say? Like it's going to be that Godfather moment, right? He lines them all up, say hello to my little friend, and and just kills them all. But here's what Joseph says. And again, this is under the umbrella that, that pain could be God's provision in your life. This is Joseph talking to his brothers. It says, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So Joseph says, actually, the pain that I went through was God's provision. I know it's crazy to think about. You guys beat me up. That's domestic violence. I got sold into slavery. That's human trafficking. And what was, what was intended for evil was actually the provision of God, not just to save me, but that I would have food to save my family, my brothers, and it's even bigger than that. Guess what that family turned into? The nation of Israel. God's chosen people. And guess who came out of that nation? Our Messiah, Jesus Christ. 
And, and the pain that Joseph went through was actually God's provision so that one day we would gather at church and celebrate Jesus Christ as Lord. And it was his pain that he walked through that was the provision. You want to go New Testament? How about the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 23? That's how we got here today. That if Paul in 23 is going, God, why are you doing this to me? See, Paul gets arrested in Acts chapter 21. And you know he's thinking, seriously, God, why am I going through this? Well, Paul didn't know at the beginning of 23, 40 men were going to try to kill him. But because he was arrested under the authority of the Roman government in 23, 23, we find out that he has 470 armed men to protect him. Think about it. That the pain that he was in was actually God's way of providing for Paul. That he would never have had that kind of protection. The 40 men probably could have killed him without him walking through the pain of being arrested. And what God was doing, little did they know, that God was going to send the Apostle Paul to Rome to preach the gospel, to plant churches, to plant churches, to plant churches, to plant churches, so that you and I would gather here today to lift up high the name of the one that was taking care of Paul back then. Or you want to go Christmas time since it's Christmas? How about, how about the pain that Mary and Joseph go through? Now we're back to Christmas, Joseph, all right? And they gotta, we got to go to Bethlehem. God, what do you mean Bethlehem? You, do you know what it's like to take a pregnant woman about to pop on a donkey all the way to Bethlehem? She can't even lay on the couch comfortable. How am I going to get her to Bethlehem? And then they get there and they can't even get a room into Holiday Inn Express. Are you kidding me, God? We're trying to be faithful and have the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and introduce the Messiah to the whole world. We're doing our part. Can you not just do your part and get us a room at the place? We've got to have the king and the barn. Seriously? Well, you know later on that kind of weird part of the Christmas story where Herod wants to kill all the kids two and under? So what happens if they're just at their home address when all that's going down? Do you ever think that all of that moving to... Bethlehem was part of the provision. The pain that they were enduring was actually the provision. And Mary and Joseph and the first family, they had to flee to Egypt for a season. And maybe this Bethlehem trip um, was to prepare them of what it's like to live on the road and to survive and to be able to make it when everything's not going your way. And the pain that they were experiencing was actually God's provision to cover them until they could take care of Herod. Or how about the essence of the gospel? That... That the pain is the provision. I mean, you could just see Jesus Christ on the cross. That God made him who was without sin to be sin for us. That we would be made righteous. That God poured out his wrath on his own son, Christ, on the cross. Who endured pain and suffering for us all. And that is the provision for us to know him. And so, here's the tough part. Here's the tough part. Is that when you're walking through the pain... It's hard to figure out what the purpose of the pain is. It just is. Because because we are not good judges of our own circumstances when we're in the circumstances ourselves. And so let me just assure you of this, that it's a big reason why God puts God's people around us when we're in pain so that we can see from God's perspective. And so as you walk through pain, I, I put it this way in your notes. I hope you'll grab onto this. That when you can't understand the purpose of the situation or the purpose of the pain, then trust God's providence. That when you can't understand the purpose of the pain, because again, when you're in the middle of it, when Lee and Tyler are in the middle of a betrayal, 
when you were in the middle of a sickness, when you were in the middle of a loss, it is hard to understand the purpose. God, I don't see how you're going to be glorified in this. I just can't get my head around it. And God, this is not the way I would have had this thing go. And so when you're in those moments of pain and you can't understand the purpose of the pain, then you trust God's providence that God is still in control. There's nothing over his head. There's nothing out of his hands. He's never been surprised. He's never been surprised. Not once has, <clears throat> when God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit walking around in heaven, they've never looked at somebody and went, what are you doing here? You are not supposed to be here. That has never, ever happened. That God is in control. And the bigness of God, the sovereignty of God, the fact that God can work in all things for the good of those that love Him and are called according to His purpose should give you some peace that surpasses understanding. That you can lean into the fact that he is in control. And only, this is crazy, this is crazy. And only an almighty and sovereign God could even take your own mistakes or take the polluted world that we live in. I mean the natural disasters and the diseases and all of that. Or <clears throat> take, take the, the, um, the pruning that he has put us through or the provision and, and have providence over it all. Only an almighty God could take evil decisions by people against you and somehow use them for your glory. But the only way that can happen is if instead of trying to figure out exactly what bucket you're in, you just trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Because I'm with you on this one because I don't understand either. But you acknowledge him in all your ways and he will make your path straight. That yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Because he's with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. And so when I don't understand why this is happening, I've got to trust the who that's in charge of the whole thing. And one day, he will make all things new. <clears throat> and so, I, uh, I need your help on something. I believe that when we walk through pain, um, God puts God's people in our lives so that we can see from God's perspective. And I've made a new friend out in California just a couple months ago, <clears throat> Pastor Ben and I were there on a um, kind of a conference. I, um, I'm a part of this group of church planners that uh, you had to be under 40 years old with a certain amount of people at your church. And so I just made the cut because it started last year. And so I'm in this little group of pastors, and it, it's really a great thing. And um, you don't know this, but church planters around the country, they are enamored with you. I mean, they are. They just can't understand how... How we started a church a year ago, and now it's all this. Okay, so they're like, you did what? In a Walmart, in a 40-foot cross, what? You know, and so they always have these questions. And so <clears throat> Pastor Ben and I are at this conference in Dallas, and, and the conference stuff's over, and we're sitting just outside of the hotel lobby fellowshipping. And then this other church planner guy comes out and sits with us, and he's just asking us a bunch of questions about you and our church. And listen, I can very quickly just start talking about how awesome you are and and just dominate the conversation. So I'm trying to deflect the compliments back to other people and then get them talking about their church, all right? So I asked this guy, so tell me all about your church. And his name's Ryan Kwan, and he's a pastor of a church um, just outside of San Francisco, California. So, you know, the opposite of Jacksonville, right? And his name's Pastor Ryan Kwan. I have a picture of him right here. He, that's him preaching at his church. Their first service is, I guess it's going on right now. And so he begins just to tell me about a little bit about his story. One of the things that's cool, he's a, um, he used to be a competitive eater. You know, like the guys that eat like a million hot dogs in a minute. So <laughs> every time we'd eat, I was like, can you eat all that? You know, so. <clears throat> so then he just 
for whatever reason, he started getting real, and, and I'm, I'm asking him about how it's going. He goes, well, the church is going great, but it's been really hard. I mean, really hard. I mean, to plant any kind of church is, is pretty difficult, but, but for him, it's just been really, really tough. Um, first of all, they're a mobile church, so they don't have a, a permanent location. Um, and so every morning, 120 volunteers every Sunday morning show up to unload four tractor trailers to build out their church, their whole thing, every single Sunday morning. And so they've been doing that for about three and a half years, and so he's getting tired. And he was just telling me, I don't know what it's like to preach a sermon without stinking from loading in and out chairs all morning long. And then um, the church, is, is it's going really well, but also in his community, his community, some of the community leaders, the mayor and the, and the city council and some of those people outside of San Francisco, they don't want a church in their area. And so he says there's been num- numerous um, newspaper articles that call him the chief sinner in town. And his chief sin is intolerance. Because he's preaching the Bible and he's preaching the love of Jesus, preaching the gospel. They say, we don't want this in this town and we can't put up with with this in this town, and he says on a weekly basis, people have, people figure out and find his phone number and call him and scream at him about being intolerant, which I don't understand how you can scream. Like, if you're tolerant, shouldn't you be tolerant of the intolerant? But they haven't thought it through very well. But they're still calling him up and screaming at him, and he gets accosted on the street, and, and he's just trying to love his city. And in fact, um, uh, his church has to pay a higher price to rent out the cafetorium of the middle school that they meet in every week. And they pay to rent out their room that they do church in. Um, they pay for four Sundays a month. They pay about what we pay in our lease for our entire facility, restore included. Because they're trying to drain their bank accounts to get them out. And his response to this has just been love after love after love. He's just trying to love his city. Um, and, then, and then this is when it just went to a whole new level. So his, his car got egged and... And all of this kind of stuff. And then one day, someone set off a stick of dynamite at his front door of his home. This explosive bomb went off. They set it off on his front door with a death threat note attached to it. And it blew his front door off its hinges. And this guy's just just explaining this to me. And that he felt the threat against his family. And now listen, this isn't Africa. It's the United States of America. Right? One nation under God. In God we trust. America. And this is what's happening as we speak. And so he was really afraid because his wife was here, was, was at home. Here's a picture of, of he and his wife. And then he's got three little kids. And so he's obviously concerned for those little cuties. <laughs> and so he's, he's telling me all this. I just can't even... Like, I, I just, I don't even have a category for it. You know what I mean? My heart just began to break for him. So I say, Pastor Quan, here's what we're going to do. Um, my church, we're going to bring you to Jacksonville for however long you want to come. Two weeks, a month, I don't care. And we're going to put you up somewhere nice. And we're going to babysit your kids. And you and your wife can go out on dates. Because church planners don't get a lot of dates. Because they're always moving chairs around. And we're going to we're gonna send you to Disney. I don't know what. but And, and you might, you know, your city m- might be coming against you. But our city, our town, we're going to gather around in our church, and we're just going to bless you and honor you, and, and that's what we're going to do. <laughs> and he said, and he said, I appreciate him. He's crying, man. He's just crying. He's just overwhelmed. He said, nobody's ever reached out to us like that, and quite honestly, I don't believe you. <laughs> I, said, 
Well, I don't care if you believe me or not. You can decide when you're flying back from Jacksonville if you believe me or not. But that's what we're going to do. Because, because our church has been so blessed. Our church has been so favored. We're not going to be a cul-de-sac of the blessing of God. We're going to be a conduit of the blessing. I mean, my, my experience is the exact opposite of his experience. Just a few weeks ago, I'm at the McKenzie Run at Everbank Field on a scissor lift with thousands of people down there. And when Brian Sexton, voice of the Jaguars, says, welcome, pastor of 1122, the crowd's like, yay! And then I pray, and then after I pray, the, as people are going by, they're like, hey, Pastor Joby, and I feel like I'm in the Macy's Day Parade. Hey, people, <laughs> it's crazy. Just waving to people. And, and Coach Gus Bradley's right there next to me, and then the mayor, our mayor, Mayor of Jacksonville, right? A million people in Jacksonville. And our mayor goes by. He's like, Pastor. I'm like, Mayor. He's like, I've been praying for you. I've been praying for you too. You know, we're waving. And Gus Bradley leans over to me. He goes, man, you're popular. I said, you would be too if you'd win. That's what I told him. (laughs) But then, hey, but true or false, we couldn't win a game. And then, and then me and Gus get together at the McKenzie run. And now we can't lose, baby. Come on. It feels good to win on Thursday and come worship on Sunday, doesn't it? You don't even have to worry about this afternoon. I might just nap. So that's been my experience. And so I'm reaching out to Pastor Kwan saying, come on, man, come on. Just, and he, he is. This spring, he's going to come. He's going to bring his family. We're going to babysit those little kids, and, and we're going to love him. We're going to honor him. And here's where I need your help. Here's where I need your help. You know, we're doing this, we're doing this Love That Sticks campaign, and, and here's why. Uh, sometimes God, needs, God wants to use you as a conduit of his truth. That somebody's going through some pain, and you're just reminding them of the truth of God's perspective. That's why these can be a big deal. Whether it's in your family or work or random or whatever. But I want us all to encourage Pastor Kwan. And by the way, his church is just going gangbusters. Look, here's a picture of his church from just a few weeks ago. On an average weekend now, they have about 1,600 adults. If you go to his Facebook page, uh, uh, Resonate Movement, that's, that's their Facebook page name. If you go there, you'll just see baptism after baptism after baptism after baptism after baptism. And they set that, do you see that elaborate whole thing? They set that up every week and people are coming because he's proclaiming the gospel and loving his city. And when, they, and when the city punches him, he just takes it and loves him back and loves him back and, and lets them know that, that we, we might be intolerant of sin, but man, we love people, all kind of people, regardless of background or lifestyle. or That's all irrelevant. We love people because God loves us. And that's what he's proclaiming, and God is moving in that place. And so I told him, Pastor Quan, you're the hero, man. You could plant a cross in Jacksonville, and a thousand people will just come look at it, all right? But what you're doing in San Francisco Bay Area, that's amazing. But man, he, he's, he's tired, and it's hard, and you can, I can see it in his face. He just, for some reason, felt safe to tell me. And so here's where I need your help. In the bottom right-hand corner of your notes, we gave you one of the love that sticks, sticky notes. And it starts out, Dear Pastor Kwan. And here's what I want to do. I want, I said this at nine, I want to blow him up. But then I'm in in like the really positive way. <laughs> I want us to write like 4,000 notes to him this weekend and put them all in, in a package and send it to him and give him a Christmas present and let him just open that up and just be overwhelmed with love from a church on the other side of the nation that he doesn't even know. And I need everybody to participate. And I need you to remind him of the truth of God, that he's God's man and God's called him and that God's grace is sufficient for him and that he's called, equipped, anointed, and appointed to do what God has called him to do. And that we're praying for him and we're rooting for him. And I need you 
to say the kind of things to him that when you're walking through pain that you were wishing somebody would say to you. And then here's what I also know. If you're currently walking through pain, as you are reminding Pastor Kwan of God's truth for his life, I believe God will remind you of his love for you as you're writing it out. So I'm going to pray. And then the band's going to come and we're going to sing. And your, your act of worship as we respond to God for who he is and what he's done is you're going to write this out and just bring them forward. And listen, when, when 1,800 people come to one spot, it gets a little crowded. So you can put them anywhere on the altar that you want. And that as you write that, you write that note of encouragement, that you'll just come and you'll just lay it, lay it down as an act of worship for God. And I would appreciate it if you help me out that way. So let's pray, and you can pray with your eyes open as you write. Dear Father in heaven, God, we love you because you first loved us. God, I thank you so much that you loved us enough to send your only son to endure pain for our provision. God, we pray for Pastor Ryan Kwan and his wife Jenny and those three precious little babies. Lord, we pray that even this morning as they are in church and as they are preaching the word and as they are uh, ministering to that city, God, that you would soften hearts in that place. God, I pray that you would use these moments of pain as pruning to help Pastor Quan abide in you, that you would abide in him. And God, I pray for any person in this room right now who is in pain or been walking through pain. Lord, I pray that even, even if they can't figure out the purpose of the pain yet, God, that they could trust your providence over all situations. And that you love us and you demonstrated your love for us in this, that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died on the cross. So God, even when it doesn't make sense to us that we would lean into you knowing that you love us and that one day you will make all things new. But in the meantime, God, may you use us as a mouthpiece for you to remind your people of your perspective. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, just as you finish writing those out, just bring them to the steps or to the altar. Hope you'll come.